Welcome to the podcast, The Storyteller, in which we talk to South Africans who have a special story to tell. Jean Tresfon is an award-winning marine conservation photographer. His passion for the ocean began as a schoolboy when he spent most of his time diving in the sea rather than on schoolwork. His speciality is underwater and aerial photography, and his journey to get there is rather interesting. I wanted to be a a marine biologist, and uh, my father vetoed the idea. He said the world is full of starving scientists, and you are to go and get yourself a degree in commerce, and once you can afford to pay your own bills, you can do what you like. Started studying uh, a BCom, and then my father passed away when I was in matric, and uh, the BCom didn't really. Well, I lost my motivation, and I was a bit of a mess. So I ended up um, dropping out of university and becoming a diving instructor and running a charter boat. So I taught diving and took people diving, uh, and then, as with uh, all these good things, I, I uh, fell in love with a very nice lady who's now my wife and uh, she told me that I couldn't be a beach bum my whole life and uh, I should study so I ended up uh, completing my degree through Cape Tech at night school and uh, ended up doing a a, a degree in business management and then for my sins uh, bought in together with my two brothers to a, a, a brick factory and for 10 years, I owned and ran uh, Cape Brick, which uh, was a great experience in, in, in business, and, uh, but not exactly food for the soul. How did you manage that, the transition from um, the need for money to a career in photography because I'm sure your your business was extremely successful but a career in photography is exactly what your father probably was afraid of you know and wouldn't put bread and, and butter on the table uh, quite right and in fact uh, the sad reality is that in South Africa I think uh, certainly in terms of wildlife photography uh, and conservation photography it's not really possible to make a decent living I think if you do commercial photography or weddings or product photography, perhaps, but um, you cannot survive on on stills photography at any rate. Uh, Shooting footage for documentaries uh, can be lucrative, but there are only a few guys that do it. Um, So I still have several business interests, but uh, certainly my passion lies with uh, on the photographic side. That's interesting because I read your uh, Facebook page from beginning to end and at the by the end of it I was exhausted I just <laughs> I, I, I thought I I just don't know how this man fits so much into his life and that's just reading about your interest in marine conservation and I didn't even know that you have on this other businesses on the sideline. Yeah, that doesn't include obviously uh, three kids and a wife. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, it's a constant juggle to to 
to fit everything in and sometimes you have to lose several opportunities either on the business side or on the family side or on the on the photographic side but uh life's too short and you don't get another shot so you've got to fit in as much as possible if i'm guilty of anything i, I try to do too much and uh drop the ball here and there and um who gives you grief about dropping balls just you are you very hard on yourself uh to a degree but uh obviously my wife is is an amazing uh person and lets me know in no uncertain terms when not not so much on her side but for the kids when i'm not uh when i'm i take my eye off the ball there you know the kids kids uh have a way of telling you when you're not uh putting in the right amount of attention um but having grown up in boarding school my entire life, my wife calls me emotionally stunted, and I, I sometimes miss the cues that other people might get, and uh, need a reminder from time to time that uh, I'm spending too much time away or too much time in the field, and uh, I've got to come back to earth every now and again. Mm. You know, when you come home from a trip and you ring the doorbell and the kids say, "Mom, who's the strange man at the gate?" You know, you've been away a bit long. <laughs> oh dear. So I, I was wondering, actually, as a, a marine uh, conservation photographer, which environment do you prefer? Do you prefer being in the air or the water? It's not so much a preference. It's like uh, you know, saying to someone, do you prefer beer or wine? Or it's, you know, it, it, they're both amazing. So I started as a diver. I, I actually qualified 30 years ago this year. Um, and that's where the photography side came in, in that I was privy to seeing things that not many other people got to see. And so many people said to me, what do you see when you're down there? And I had to find some way of explaining to them. And the best way was to show them. So back in, in around, uh, 1998, I started taking a camera with me and, uh, in the pre-digital days, the learning curve was quite steep. And that's how I got into photography. I never was interested in taking terrestrial photos or photos on land um, and became an underwater photographer. And then about 10 years ago, I learned to fly. And that was, again, quite a, a, a by chance occurrence. So the, the diving I've always been passionate about and, and, and I've wanted to dive since as long as I could remember, but I never really wanted to fly. And then a friend of mine uh, took me in his gyrocopter for a flight along the Duhurp coast. And I was kind of blown away by the, the different perspective. Um, both diving and flying offer you a, an unusual perspective on a place you already know. So the ones being down looking up and the others being up looking down. Mm. And they have, a lot, they have a lot more in common than you would think. And so I, I, I took this flight with a friend of mine and... He was quite keen for me to start flying, so he gifted me a what's called an introductory flight with the flight instructor, and I did this flight and then signed up to do my pilot's license, more as a sort of personal challenge. I think I was looking for another challenge, and halfway through the course, I was absolutely hooked, and I've been flying for the last 10 years, and I've learned probably more about the ocean in the last 10 years of flying than I have in 30 years of diving because I've been able to cover a lot more ground and see a lot more things. Um, and at the same time, it wasn't, it took me a little while to get comfortable flying a plane. But once I was 
comfortable with the piloting side, it wasn't long before I took my camera along and then tried my hand at the at the aerial photography side of things. I, I know you do a lot of, of whale surveys. Well, well, if I may, may speak to that yeah. for a second. Um, so a lot of my time these days I donate to conservation causes. So I've flown quite a few uh, southern right whale surveys for the whale unit of South mm. Africa. And I've flown shark surveys for the shark spotters. Um, and I do weekly marine wildlife surveys for myself and then share my findings with the fish scientists, dolphin scientists, whale scientists, shark scientists, and so on. Um, I also do surveys to check for illegal fishing and poaching and all sorts of other bits and pieces. And, um, yeah, so I spend the, the bulk of my time doing those sort of surveys and uh it's not something I really uh, get paid for on the most part. Yeah. Okay, so most of this is actually volunteer work. Quite a lot of it is volunteer work. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's not that I don't get anything from it. So over the years, I'm not a marine scientist. And spending lots of time in the field with marine scientists, I've learned an incredible amount about the subject about which I'm most passionate. They get, uh, obviously, an aerial platform, and they get to do their surveys, uh, and they get to save money because scientists are always on a very tight budget. But at the same time, I learn an incredible amount and and uh, get opportunities to photograph and see things that I wouldn't otherwise get. So there's, there's definitely a two-way street. You are not afraid of confrontation in the conservation world. The conservation world is highly politicized. And um, when it comes to actually getting involved in the politics of conservation, you you don't seem to be afraid. Uh, Michelle, I don't like confrontation. I try and avoid it if possible. And I find a, a good working relationship is obviously a lot more beneficial. But if I feel that someone needs to be called out and something, I'll do it. I, you know, if no one else is, is going to step forward, I'll, you know, and I think that uh, someone is not doing their job or or doing their job in an incorrect way and harming the marine environment, then I will certainly call them out on it. And uh, I found myself on the other side of the table with the city of Cape Town in several instances. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm I'm pleased to say that that from early days when it was very adversarial and uh, you know I got threatened with lawsuits and lots of legal letters and whatnot, I now have a great working relationship with several people, and a lot of the stuff we do now is over a cup of coffee, which is a much nicer way to do it. So I, I try and avoid conflict, but if I if I need to, then that's the way we'll go. That's very interesting. Um... Let's just take, for example, the the uh, raw sewage outfall problem that you've been on to, I think, for about five years now. Yeah. Is it still an ongoing battle between you and the Cape Town city, or are you actually finding ways to talk to each other about it? So that's, I mean, we, we are in open dialogue. I've got a much better relationship now with a lot of the people involved. As I say, I've, I've got a kind of relationship where I can pick up the phone and ask a question and get an answer or go and have a cup of coffee with a relevant person in the relevant department and get some answers. And, and if I feel that uh, 
that that nothing's happening i'll certainly use my resources to try and make it happen but um originally it was a huge problem look nothing's really changed in terms of the outfalls themselves uh cape town still pumps you know 28 uh, million odd liters of, of raw sewage a day into the ocean and um, nothing's going to change but in fact all the waste that we as humans generate and put either down the drain or into the sewage the, the stormwater system so from and you wash out your bin or you clean your paintbrush or you um, you know use the toilet or you take a shower every single bit of waste that we produce either ends up in the stormwater or in the sewage system and all of that goes into the river and then into the sea or straight into the sea so everything we use goes into the sea but how how do you, does one sensitize people about our oceans who are for example landlocked and in cities and um it, it it's not something that's in their zone of consciousness well in fact that applies to the bulk of our population the, yes by far and away the vast majority of our population is too poor and mm. uh will never have the time the money the opportunity or the inclination to go into the water for most people the vast bulk of our country the ocean is seen as either a, a a food source, a source of protein, or a dumping ground, a place to throw things, and that's all it is. That's right. So, um, do you, do you, do you feel that you're actually making some sort of difference? There are a couple of ways to get around this. I mean, the old-fashioned way is to have um, aquaria or aquariums, and uh, Places like the Two Oceans Aquarium in Cape Town do amazing work at getting people who would never have the opportunity to see some of the creatures that live under the sea into close contact. Um, and I've done lots of work with them uh, and in the past bringing underprivileged kids uh, from places like Okanyo Primary in uh, Masipumalele to the aquarium where they get shown around and taught about the animals in their own language and they do amazing work and then obviously the other other side of it is to do a virtual educational uh, campaign where people learn through documentaries and uh, pictures and stories and images when it comes to mm -hmm. conservation photography and getting action there are two two sides to the conservation coin one is obviously showing people the negative side the poaching illegal fishing the pollution and then, but it it has an opposite effect. If you show people too too much negativity, they go, "Well, it's you know, problem's too big, and it's not worth fixing." And and and. So the other side of that conservation coin is to show people the beauty and showcase the abundance and what we still have left that's worthy of protection. And Cape Town, although we do a lot wrong in terms of polluting our oceans and uh, uncontrolled poaching and fishing, and on the same same time we we have unbelievable abundance in our seas still in certain sectors and we have so much that's worthy of our protection so it's not too late it's it's very much opposite as now is the right time to act to to conserve what we have you are um very active on on social media it's it's obvious that that's what you try to do on on your social media platforms is to to show both sides of 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 the story in terms of what's happening in conservation, uh, 
But um, and I, I, you get a lot of praise for it. But on the other hand, with social media, you can come, you can receive a lot of punches. You can come in for quite a bruising uh, from the public because you're, you're accessible to all. No, it's de de definitely it's definitely a double-edged sword. Um, so on the first first part is that I'm very very careful about what I put onto social media. Um, I stick to topics that I actually know something about. I don't venture into any fields of uh, that that I personally don't have any expertise in. So I, I stick to marine conservation, the marine environment, um, and then. I stay away from politics and religion and as much as I can <laughs> and uh, try and stick to just, you know, the, the raw facts. And, I, and I, I research my posts very well before I post anything. And when I make a mistake, I don't take it down. I leave it up there and then update the post because we're all human. We all make mistakes. And I'm as willing to learn as anybody else. Um, and I found it an amazing tool. I, I, you know, I don't use social media for kind of selfies and personal glorification i use it to to further marine conservation and to showcase some of the stuff and i've learned as much from people on social media as they learn from me because very often you you see something you don't know what you're looking at and you put it out there and someone will know and uh, you learn a hell of a lot but as i say you have to be super careful about what you say and what you post and i i, I do uh, huge amount of research and try and stick to the facts as much as possible and uh, generally then it's all right once or twice i've fallen foul of the public and uh, it's been a bit of a learning curve mm. uh, exactly um and it can be quite a painful learning curve unless you've got a bit of a thick skin oh very much so uh, there's a documentary out on netflix that everybody's talking about craig foster's um, my octopus teacher i'm sure mm. you yeah. Yes. Um, and so one of the phrases that I sort of picked up from that and I wanted to ask you about was that they talked a lot about their best wildlife interactions and that sometimes the best interactions are when when the creatures or you're looking at actually approach you as opposed to you chasing them i mean what are, what have been your best wildlife interactions so, so craig foster who is the the star of the show other than the octopus in that is a friend i'm proud to call him a friend and he's a hundred percent correct i have had thousands of interactions with marine wildlife over the 30 years i've been diving and without a question of a doubt the very best ones have always been when the animal has initiated the encounter. You can you can swim after a marine creature and try and force an interaction, but generally you just generate a flight response and the animal's stressed. But when the animal chooses to interact with you on its terms, you you are definitely due for a, an absolute magical interaction and nothing beats that. So to answer your question, so, uh, I've had been very privileged to have many many amazing interactions um but you know I, I i remember one for example of having two humpback whales that circled me pushed me and played with me for an hour and the water was eight degrees of heart bay 
and I was there under permit from the Department of Environmental Affairs filming humpbacks. And I got out of the water, and the one humpback actually lifted its start, its head out of the water and pushed the boat until <laughs> I got back in the water. And when I got back in the water, they carried on playing with me. And every time I got too cold and got out of the boat, got out of the water rather, got into the boat, uh, they would push the boat until I got back in, until I couldn't <laughs> anymore. I mean, it was an amazing experience to just play with these animals. They are as curious about us as we are about them. And it was just an unbelievable. You can clearly see you dealing with a sentient being. And uh, oh, I've got many stories like that, but always when the animal has started the encounter. It, it must have been a very gentle interaction for you because you you could have so easily. They obviously sense your boundaries, um, what you can take for that interaction to occur. Well, I mean, you're dealing with a, with a 40-ton animal. And uh, obviously... Uh, you know, getting close to whales is a bad idea in most yeah. times because they are so big. But they are unbelievably aware of their bodies and where their tails and fins and pectoral fins are. They're very, very they've got massive spatial awareness, and um, you obviously have to read the body language of the animal and stay within the boundaries that the animal sets. So very often, a humpback will swing its four meter long pectoral fin towards you and just kind of keep you at that that distance if you know if it can't touch you then it's happy and the animal if you if you know how to read their body language animals always set very clear boundaries and as long as you stay within those boundaries you can have an absolutely magical time but if you ignore those boundaries you can get yourself hurt yeah so they when they bumped you um how were they doing it well the animal would come towards me um head first and just you know, gently push me back through the water. Really? And, uh, I'd obviously swim away. You don't want to be kind of stuck on the end of a well. And, uh, you know, you just carefully keep your distance. And obviously, uh, I'm trying to film at the same time. So you don't you don't necessarily want to be being pushed around. But, you know, the animals are amazing. They, they have a, such a, a, a sense of awareness. They know exactly what they're doing and they know what you're doing. As long it's like it's a mutual respect thing. As long as you respect the animal, and the animal will generally respect you. It's a minute when you try and force something, get too close, try and force a shot, try and force an encounter. Then that's when the problems mm. start. Uh, lockdown, the lockdown period that um, you um, had to undergo, um, and in one of your posts, you mentioned that you felt very disconnected from the ocean. And I, I was interested to know what you meant by that. Did you mean uh, you missed the ocean? or no, I meant or, I could, I, I, uh, during lockdown, we weren't allowed to leave our houses. I couldn't even take a drive to go and see the ocean, let alone dive in it or fly over it. Or I, I, For the last 10 years, I've pretty much done once or twice weekly flights around the peninsula to check on what the animals are doing in the ocean. And been diving a lot in the same period. So I'm intimately in touch with, I know when the first whales arrive off our coast. I, I know when the humpbacks are gathering in supergroups off Dustin Island. I know when the seals are pupping and molting. I know when the, when, you know, every, the pulse of the ocean is something that I'm intimately connected with. And, and not being able to even see the ocean for a couple of months, it was, it was horrible. I felt completely disconnected. Not a case of I miss it. It's a case of I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if, if everything's happening as it should. 
you know, I don't know if the poaching's continuing unchecked. You, you know, just I just felt completely disconnected. Well, I was trying to break down that passive passion. Is do you feel anger when you see things happening that shouldn't happen, or do you, what what is fueling your passion? Well. I don't really feel anger. I feel more disappointment. You know, I thought we as a species mm. in 2020 should know better than to do a lot of the things that we're doing. Um, and the fuel comes from the fact that I have had 30 years of unbelievable encounters and sites underwater and above the water. And you can't see the things I see and not want to do something to maintain a healthy ocean. I mean, I've had some unbelievable encounters and experiences and it's just... If if you've seen the abundance that we have, you can't not want to protect it. It's it's not possible. So I feel almost duty bound. And the other thing is that, you know, thanks to my vantage point of going underwater and above the water in the aircraft, I I see things that most people will never get to see. And it it means that you really you have to. You, I almost feel compelled to use my privileged position to to make things happen in a way to protect the ocean. You can't you can't have those experiences and then sit back and just allow things to go wrong. To see Jean's wonderful images and stories, follow him on Facebook at Jean Tresfon Photography. A special thanks to Freesound. This podcast was brought to you by Digital Storyteller. <laughs>